you're listening to The Hive, helping talent executives and practitioners better develop their talent and to support their organization's business strategy. Whether you're looking to stay on top of emerging trends that are impacting talent development or learn from other experts about what's working in their organization, this is the podcast for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to The Hive Podcast. With the NBA championship between Golden State and Cleveland wrapping up recently, we thought it'd be great to talk about talent development in the NBA. And today we are fortunate to have Michael Kennedy with us. Mike's the head of learning and development for the NBA. So welcome, Mike. It's great to have you as our guest on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Larry. It's great to be here. Well, I wanted to ask a couple questions. So the question that's on everyone's mind, having someone from the NBA here, who do you think is the better basketball player, Steph Curry or LeBron James? Oh, you set me up with that. Okay. How about this answer? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the right answer. Uh, It'll be really interesting to see, obviously, two outstanding players. It'll be really interesting to see uh, LeBron's move to the Lakers and how that pans out. But in all seriousness, let's get into some good questions and what everyone tuned in to listen to. So. Actually, I'll tell you what, you know what, that's a great question in some ways, though, for a conversation about talent development, right? Because the, on some level, the, you know, the, the facetious answer of yes is backed by the more serious question of better for what, right? And right. part of what we did, you know, my colleague here who leads the talent management vertical will say, you know, potential, high potential, got to remember to ask the question, potential for what? And in this case, you know, Steph Curry or LeBron, it's, it's really a question of, who's the better basketball player in terms of what's needed from them in in their situation, right? So it's always about context. Great point. Great point. I think that applies to uh, basically every industry and every career. So good insight on that. Well, let me start maybe with a slightly easier question. Tell us a little bit about your background in talent development and learning, what your role at the NBA looks like. I think you've been there maybe seven, eight years now. So tell us a little bit about what that looks like. So just a little on my pre-MBA background because I've been a practitioner in the learning and development slash talent development, you know, whatever set of slashes and et cetera as you want to add to that. Roughly, it makes me cringe a little when I say it, but very rapidly approaching a quarter century doing this kind of work and have moved through several industries, started out in, in mental health, eventually in uh, in some smaller firms, professional services firms. But my, my kind of more corporate background was with Tiffany and Company, where I, where I did OD work then KPMG in several roles there, and, and now the MBA. And the titles have changed and the responsibilities have, have varied a little. I would say that, that here at the MBA, I've probably had the, the first off longest, but also most stable run in terms of, of what I do in it. And it is leading, first and foremost, leading the, the learning and development function. And so over time, that, that function has, has evolved in, in various ways. But the, the core set of responsibilities has always been the same, lead the team to develop great professional development opportunities and curricula. We really only formally launched a leadership development function around four years ago. And so, so building that up over time, my role, or at least my responsibilities have shifted a little bit more recently as I've handed over a great deal of the day-to-day to, uh, to my L&D team and have taken on a little bit more formal responsibility in First off, talent talent management and planning, where we're getting a little bit more active in partnering with the business and providing a little more hands-on service in their thinking through talent management and development over time. And then also, we've recently launched an advisory HR function for, for the, the teams, for the NBA organizations, 
gosh, it's around 80 teams when you include uh, WNBA, NBA, and now our our 2K league, the, uh, the the e-game league. And so we're we're providing some more consulting services to them. And so in the in the more L and D space, I'm although I'm not a formal member of that small team, I'm one of the people that's delivering a lot of a lot of the consulting service. So that's kind of where I am at at this point in time. Great, fantastic. Now, one thing you mentioned. You've been in this space like me for almost a quarter century. Obviously, you've been at the NBA for seven, eight years now. Anytime I get the chance to talk to someone with that much experience, I ask this question, and that is talk a little bit about how developing talent has changed over that period of time, either in the NBA or in general. Because one thing we want to do on this podcast is really talk about innovation and the change that's taking place in this space. So I'd ask you that question. How has developing talent changed over that time? It's actually a, a kind of remarkable thing when you when you ask it that way, Larry, that what I've experienced at the NBA in many ways has been a little bit of a microcosm for what I've experienced over the, the two plus decades. And and that's in part because um, you know, our previous commissioner, David Stern, was commissioner and CEO here for, for 30 years. And I used to say this of him, but now uh, I've actually spoken to David a few times recently, and he would say this himself, that you know he, he managed the way he had to, to make the organization successful when he came in. Remember that, that when he started, it was a time when they were showing finals games on tape, or just not very far removed from showing finals games on tape delay, for crying out loud, right? Right, so, right. But to build the organization, he did. I mean, it required a very strong hand and, and a very strong set of operational values that, that he stuck with very closely for, it, for, the, for the course of his tenure. But he did recognize that it limited us in some ways. And, and so the reason I, I share that is because when I, when I entered L&D in the mid-90s, it was really, I think the field was, was number one, very, very tactical in nature, not very much evidence-based, which again, at the time, how much evidence really was there? We're talking about pre-internet in a meaningful way. The field was dominated at that point, I would say, by people who came into L&D or, or talent development more broadly for reasons that were, weren't necessarily bad ones, but didn't necessarily either connect to the real challenges of the work. So people, and I say this, including myself, I, you know, I had a little bit of a theater background and, you know, there was a performative element to being in learning and development and being in the front of the room. And those things were helpful, but also could distract from the need to really gather better data and, and better research about what success looked like. I think the pendulum then swung a little bit toward, and maybe a little too far toward the, the measurement and formal and rigorous instructional design side. Not that I'm, I, believe me, I'm never going to, to say anything negative about instructional design as a, as a discipline, as a, as a required discipline for us to be successful, but it also stepped away, I think, a little bit from the, the human element of what we do. And, and I think the pendulum has, has settled in, in a better place. And I think, especially in the last decade or so, the field has really evolved to become much more strategic and much more, and much more business-minded. And I think that's true largely of HR in general, but I think that's partly because talent management has, has risen, I think, to, to assume something of a, a leadership role, if you sort of <laughs> anthropomorphize this a little bit. But the talent management, because of its more strategic focus, has started to better inform people and culture in general. And as I said, just the time in the NBA has been a little bit of a microcosm of that, where when I got here, I think it was in a a much more tactical, order-taking kind of capacity. I'm very proud of the fact that in my time here, I think we've been at the forefront of helping us evolve in terms of how we deal with, with human capital and developing our people across the workforce. Great point. 
As we look back how things have changed, I, I think every day that I get on LinkedIn or email or social media, things seem to be changing even faster. At least it seems that way based on what people are putting out there. And I, I guess I try and look for practical things. Our listeners are looking for practical things. Is there something new or innovative that you've done recently or that you're currently in the process of trying at the MBA that's finding success around developing talent? I think there's a little bit of a long tail on this, so I might have to, to do a little bit of uh, <laughs> kind of backward storytelling. I feel like the writer of Westworld here a little bit. But, um, you know, the, the thing that most recently we've had a lot of success with, and I say this because this is one of those cases where, you know, it's, it's tougher in a smaller organization. And I'll add that as a little bit of a side note that I, that I think where some of what I've learned, it, it can be particularly helpful to organizations that aren't necessarily large ones. We're only around 1,500 here at the at the league HQ, and it can be tough for us to to find meaningful ways to to measure our success. Just when you talk about sample sizes, my friends in people analytics, you know, we get into it a little. I'm like, I don't care if it's not statistically significant. Just tell me if it's working, and, and they laugh at me and say that's not how that works, right? But but one piece of data that we got recently was from our most recent uh, employee engagement survey, and not that engagement is is the be all and end all of our efforts, but we did see. First off, a, a really big jump from just a year ago in our overall engagement. But most meaningfully to me, the thing that really formed the foundation for that increase was that we had enormous increases in most in many of our measurements of frontline management. In fact, eight of our ten largest gains, all of which were fourteen points or more from from previous survey, were in were in frontline management. And so. You know, I'm really, I'm really proud of that. And I, what we did to to get there, here's the backward moving part. You know, in 2017, we really rethought our approach to leadership development, which we were doing pretty well. I think we won an award in 2016. You know, we're doing some good things, but we we thought that there was a better way to influence the entire organization, and that was by creating a model that was that was much more holistic and and point in time. So instead of saying Hey, when you're uh, when you're coming into the organization, go to leadership training, and then you know we'll have a few offerings here and there, and then a few years down the line, we have a more advanced program that we want to invite you to. We said, you know what? Any any transition for our for our leaders and managers is a place for them to come in, spend a few days with us, think about who they are as leaders, and then make sure that there's that there's consistency across all those levels. So whether as of a year and a half ago, whether you were hired as a manager or whether you were promoted into a manager role, or for that matter, if you were just in your role for a while and hadn't participated in any kind of leadership development, we really we really encouraged people to to come participate in this new set of programming that we developed. And I do think there's a, a pretty direct link between that approach and and the gains that we've seen and engagement. And going back earlier than that, though, I, I think we also that was enabled by some some previous changes that we've made even even just launching the leadership development function in 2015 starting high potential development programming at the same time really doing our first very dedicated and targeted leadership development programming for the senior most levels of the organization where those folks who are tenured in in some cases decades long leaders at the organization but we really asked and they were open to it, which was which was great. But we got something like eighty percent of our more senior levels of leaders to participate in some in some programming and some follow up activity, peer coaching, and, and a number of other activities. And we feel like that really laid the groundwork 
for for this to end up being successful, along with some some changes that we've made just in terms of how we approach things like performance management. But those things were really, I think, enabled by hitting a, a new gear in terms of how our senior leaders perceive the, the understanding or perceive the importance of, of leadership and developing a, a culture of good leadership around the organization. That's great stuff. As I think about looking forward, I think anybody who's in the learning and development space these days, things are changing so quickly that there's always that pressure to think about what's next and to evolve. And so as I think about the MBA, what do you see on the horizon in terms of developing talent or learning leadership development? What do you see two years, three years, five years out that you guys are already beginning to think about? I don't think it's a uh, it's a different answer than most our fellow practitioners might offer, but but it's becoming so much more about personalization, right? And I, we we all recognize now, I think that that we are long past the days where we expect people to be long tenured in a given organization. And what we are maybe not as far along with is recognition that that's okay, <laughs> right? It's, or at least it's value neutral. That's just what it is now. And to say that it's a bad thing or a good thing isn't helpful. What's helpful is to say it's a thing. And what do we then do with that, right? So the idea, I think now we'll, we'll still have classroom curriculum and we'll still have things that are done on a calendar. But I think where we are, are trying to, to move forward, as many are, is to say development needs to be more point in time. And so, well, I think that the move in on the technology side to micro learning was a step in that direction. It's, it's only a step. And I, I, was, I was very skeptical even a few years ago that we were ever really going to have good technology-based solutions for social learning. But I think that idea integrated with the learning experience platform and some of those other overlays where we're not constrained by our LMSs, right? But but we're headed there uh, along with many others and saying, what kind of technology, and, and we're, we're implementing a few things right now, but what are the technologies that are going to allow us people develop themselves in real time with knowledge sharing with their with their peers and colleagues with some support from the learning function but not necessarily i'm even starting to become skeptical about the word the word curation which i think goes too far uh, as opposed to you know more providing some some direction on one's own uh, de- development of, of a path for 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 growth in skills knowledge abilities right so all this, again, technology enabled, but with a human element where those platforms all, I think that the biggest skill that, that, that my team and that all of us probably need to, to be mindful of over time is how do we develop those things in a way that there's still a sense of personal engagement, uh, not maybe not intimacy the way we had back in the, in the classroom days, but how do people feel like they're still connected to a community of learning rather than just doing it all on their own? Yeah, I talk to a lot of leaders and practitioners, and one of the things I say there is, what's practical for your organization? I, I'm all, always reminded of the phrase that uh, many people underestimate or overestimate what will happen in two years and underestimate what will happen in 10. And sometimes in the yeah. learning space, I think people are running around saying the sky is falling of what's going to happen in two years. But I think it really comes back to being practical about what learning looks like in your organization. No doubt about yeah. that. For sure. I, you know, it's. Uh, Along those lines, uh, even just something like like virtual reality is a great example of what you're talking about, Larry, where I think people are mentally jumping to a place, even, as you say, a year or two down the road where that's going to revolutionize something. And, and I don't see that happening. I do see, as you said, you know, five years out, 10 years out where we're talking about virtual classrooms being enabled mm-hmm. because the technology is better. 
Like those things seem plausible. But in the meantime, people are talking about, well, VR simulations. Well, you know what? We, we have the ability right now to develop very robust computer-based simulations that we don't do very much because they're awfully expensive. And, right. and that's not going to become less expensive to do on VR, and it's certainly not going to happen in the next couple of years, right? So that wave won't crest for a significant uh, amount of time out. Yeah. Good point. One last question I want to ask. You've been very gracious with your time today. We have a, a wide variety of listeners, everyone from chief learning officers all the way to entry-level practitioners, but any advice you would share with other learning leaders that are facing, uh, you know, these fast-paced challenges in the learning space, what would be your practical advice to anyone in the learning space these days? I, I, I would say a couple of things. And as I mentioned, part of my lens is through that of a smaller organization, right? And, and where we have to sometimes get things done. We try to be world-class, but we have to be world-class still working within the constraints of an environment that, that is smaller workforce and sometimes as a result, a smaller budget and having to work to scale. So a couple of things that come through there is first off, take advantage of, of the peer community. And I have to say that's something that, that I was not as, as smart about even a, a couple of years ago where I thought, well, because larger organizations in particular are doing things with a different kind of, of budget and scope, I can't learn from that. And over the past, as I said, a couple of years or so, I've really um, deepened my, my insight into what I, what I can learn from peers because there are ways to take what they've done and iterate. And this is uh, the other point is perfection shouldn't be the goal. We, again, launched what, what I think by any reasonable standard was a, a very successful high potential development function just a couple of years ago, and we're now going to blow it up. <laughs> and we're not blowing it up because it was wrong or because it wasn't, it wasn't helpful to the people that participated in it, but because it was V1. And so we think that there are new things that we could do. We're going to take what we learned and we're going to continue building and growing. But, but everything that I, that I did with that set of programming was based on things that I heard from colleagues or through doing some research and said, how can we make that successful in our environment, even though we don't necessarily have the same resourcing? Found ways to make that work. And then, and again, I think had, had great success with it, but also being willing to say everything, everything is a work in progress. And we're in a place now where a couple of years is a good run. If you've, if you've had something that's worked well, don't, don't throw everything out. Find the pieces of it that are going to be successful in your, in your next version. But everything's got a, got a short shelf life now, and, and I think we need to adapt to that. Great. Great insight. Well, Mike, on behalf of our podcast listeners, I wanted to say thank you. If any of our listeners want to follow up with you, what's the best way they can reach out to you? Find me on LinkedIn, for sure. And I know uh, the name Michael Kennedy is not exactly an uncommon one, but if you uh, attach NBA to that and then use the, uh, the old search engine, you should pretty easily get to me. And any fellow practitioners, I'm, I'm always eager to, uh, to correspond with and learn from. Awesome. Well, we'll put your uh, LinkedIn profile in the podcast notes for our listeners. Thanks again, Mike. We've had Michael Kennedy today from the MBA Head of Learning and Development, and that's going to do it for this episode of The Hive. If you have any topics related to innovations and talent development that you'd like us to address, feel free to send us an email. You can find my contact information in the podcast notes as well. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. In today's dynamic business environment, people performance, now more than ever, has become a key strategic differentiator. 
St. Charles provides innovative learning services and solutions that improve people performance and positively impact organizations' performance. To find out how we do it and how we can help your organization, visit stccg.com. You've been listening to The Hive. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.